0: Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. I'm Lian Sharba and I joined Pass the Mic this past winter semester. I was born in Syria and grew up there for 13 years of my life. But according to the US census and many job and school applications, I'm considered white. There's no Arab or Middle Eastern as a category that I can check off. I'm not alone in this experience. For those of Middle Eastern and North African backgrounds, or MENA for short, checking the racial identity box can be a tricky choice. MENA identities include origins in the League of Arab States, non-Arab MENA states like Turkey and Iran, as well as transnational communities like Assyrians and Chaldeans, in addition to Armenians and Circassians. University of Michigan alumni, Devin Batheesh, Jad al Silan Fadlallah, Abtihal Maki, Arwa Gayar, and Nadine Jawad, all identified as MENA, but had no way to express that identity on campus. So they started the We Exist movement. The We Exist movement led to the passing of resolutions at UMICH that recognized MENA as a racial category. We sat down with some of them to learn about that movement, what it looks like on campus, and its implications at Michigan and beyond. Why don't you start with telling us a little bit about yourself and your role in the We Exist movement?
1: My name is Devin Batheesh. Um, I'm a Palestinian Arab American. I was at Michigan from 2012 through 2017. And during that time, uh, we witnessed a lot of really important developments for the Arab community on campus. One of them was Islamophobia Working Group, um, which came about in like 2015 after the American sniper incident. And out of that working group, it's called IWG now, was a series of you know tasks that we wanted to work on. And one of those tasks, getting a like a MENA category. And it was a friend and myself, so Ibtihal al-Maki, um, we kind Like the original two that were just going to be like, okay, we're going to go and we're going to talk to, at that time, it was Kedra Isha. She was the vice president of admissions, I think, at the time. This is back in like maybe 2015, 2016. We went and had a conversation. We asked if we could add the category onto U of M applications. And she stonewalled us a little bit, uh, which was a typical response around. We're going to wait for the census to come out and do theirs, and then we'll just match whatever the census is. For me, that was kind of where the Mina participation kind of ended. just thought, okay, there are other things to handle. Once that happened, I think Jad and the others, uh, Jad Al-Haraqi, Nadine Jawad, uh, Abdel al they basically took it and ran with it. It, w- it didn't just die on impact. They really made it a campaign to push past Ghidra, to keep having meetings, to keep going through that. So I was there kind of for the, really the beginning stages. In, in that process, but I, I do want to kind of underline that I was not the main force of this in any way.
2: So yes, my name is Jad Harake. I graduated from the University of Michigan 2018 from the College of LSA, uh, majored in BCN, biopsychology, cognition, and neuroscience. I then worked for a year for ODE, the Office of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, and then for OHE as well, the Office for Health, Equity and Inclusion. And I'm now uh, a graduate student here at Yale, studying uh, health policy and global health. I think before I kind of jump into what my role was, I think it's important to pay respect uh, and to thank those who came before us. Uh, so the MENA leaders who came before kind of the We Exist movement, because we would not have been able to accomplish this without their advocacy during their time on campus. Because over time it accumulates, right? So like these like little movements, little pushes, uh, and in the past there have like MENA leaders who have asked to, asked admissions and asked U of M administration about a MENA box. So those conversations happen, but this is, this is nothing new. It's happened on several other campuses, but it also, so it all started at the time uh, the University of Michigan was launching their diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, strategic planning, right? It's like a five-year plan. And I remember kind of going through that plan and many of and several others. You know, you go through that DEI plan and there is the the words Arab are not there, Middle Eastern, not there, North African, not there. And you realize there's huge implications that come with this. We had a few meetings early on, a few conversations. At first, it was let's collect. What we know and don't know. So the information is any office on campus collecting MENA information. So that's how it all started. And then it transitioned into a lot of other things I'm sure we'll eventually cover from you know CSG resolutions to speaking to the regents, meeting with administration, but to also add on to it, it wasn't just students. And this was this is what made this. So powerful. It was staff and faculty and not only just MENA staff and faculty and administration, but it was also a lot of allies and those who had, you know, had nothing to do with being MENA, but they supported us along the way and met with us, guided us, mentored us. It was beautiful.
3: Yeah, okay. So uh, Nadine Joad, I graduated from UMass in 2018 from the Ford School. I'm currently a Stanford M1 student in the medical school. So, like my time at U of M, I was really involved with student government uh, all four years. And my senior year, I was student body vice president. My role within CSG, I feel like, was to introduce to all the different colleges and kind of tell them about what We Exist is, and then get the, each college to sign on to the legislation so it became like a campus wide thing. So, that was like my specific role uh, was basically translating the policy, like the idea into like a policy, like a thing within student government, if that makes sense, to get student voice involved.
4: Okay, so my name is Sidan Fadlallah. I'm a Master of Management student right now at the Ross School of Business. I graduate May 2021. I graduated from the University of Michigan getting my undergrad in Spanish in 2020. I was a founding sister of al Alpha Sigma Sorority Incorporated, um, as well as the president. And so with the We Exist movement, initially I actually got introduced as a freshman when it was just a resolution. So Jad Al-Harakeh and Nadine Jawad were the two people that kind of introduced me into getting a checkbox um, created for Middle Eastern North African students. They were like, hey, we're graduating relatively soon within the next couple of years. We want to pass this down to some of the freshmen so that they know what's going on when we're not here to, to implement this um, or to make sure it's implemented rather. I was with them as well as Ibtihal and Devin when kind of like the resolution was being created and finalized and presented to CSG. And so that was really, really cool for me to see as a freshman because that was kind of one of my first introductions to social activism on campus. Um, And then after that, it was a lot of meeting with the dean, meeting with a lot of different faculty and administration and other student groups, actually, to try to ensure that Middle Eastern North Africans are getting represented on campus.
5: My name is Arwa Gayar. I graduated from um in May 2020. The We Exist movement was really taking off around 27, 2018. And kind of just to set the scene, campus was really lucky at the time. In those like few years, there was an overlap where it's just, I think you had a lot of really strong student leaders in a really pivotal time all together on campus. And I think it was, you know, like everything uh, with ad- advocacy and activism, it, it's a multi-generational. I know that there were a lot of activists and advocates who had also graduated and were really crucial in this advocacy. So, yeah, around this time, I think that community had really begun to mobilize itself. It was right around when Trump had gotten elected. And at the same time, there was a lot of noise around divestment. And I think the of community had a general awakening that there is a real need to get organized, not only at the student level, but also, you know, as students were, you know, thinking as student activists and student leaders, they're like, okay, we need to get our student organization and our student org presence, like to be there and to be able to advocate for ourselves. And we don't have, of the data to be able to prove to administration that we're underrepresented or that we need certain resources and so i think that's a lot of uh where the we exist movement came in and to be completely honest i was doing a lot of like the divestment stuff around that time and i think that the we exist movement was particularly important because so much of the rhetoric was how so, a divestment was basically just um, a, a movement to pass a resolution that asked the university to look into funds or investments that we had in companies that profit off of human rights abuses in Palestine. And a large part of our argument was that. You know students tuition is a directly contributing to these companies that are abusing human rights of of our families and of our people um using that rhetoric a lot of people were like how (laughs) a very sad response to like a very genuine question some people were asking how much of the student body does this really affect outside of like the ethics of all of that of just like in general this should be something enough that's like more than enough for us to take a stance on it and do something about, we found that we didn't really have uh, the resources to be able to give them that information.
0: Why do you think a checkbox is important? Why is this recognition important? In other words, why can't Mina just be labeled under white?
1: Underrepresented minorities are statistics that universities track. Arabs are not a part of that. We're a part of the dominant characteristic trait, which is you know, being counted as white. Which, again, is not helpful in any way. When we would be on campus asking, do we have these services for Arab students? Members of the administration would ask, well, how many Arab students are there? We have no idea, right? And it's not our fault. That was intentional, right? We cannot count how many students there are. So we couldn't even back up the ask that we're making to say, this is how many students are going to be impacted. Because we had no clue. And that was not something that we did. It was by design. Arab have never been recognized in the area I'm from right? Hardly ever. The only organization that did so was my organization. And growing up, I used to volunteer for the organization. So I've been associated with the organization for like 15 years. And the only reason I can say that is because I saw the organization. If I didn't have the organization I currently work for, the AHC, There would be no Arab American recognition in the area I come from, right? So on a personal level, it just didn't exist, right? On a more official level, we're talking education curriculum didn't exist for kids. Nobody in our schools learn about Arab American unless it is a nonprofit like ours teaching them, right? Unless it's the National Museum down in Dearborn teaching them. On the health side, you know, we're, we're not tracking Arab American diseases, right? Most Arab in the community know that diabetes... High cholesterol and hypertension are probably most prevalent in the community. But we don't really have national data to back that up. We have focus group data. We have very focused data to kind of highlight that. And so while we might have some doctors who are kind of more intercultural, kind of attuned to this, most are not. Because this is, I mean, you're not going to have this talk. Medical schools, unless it's kind of universally backed up. The same is true on the not just the educational side and the medical side, but we're talking financial side. Having an understanding of where Arab Americans fit on the median household income lines. Are they more in line with more marginalized minority groups such as Black Americans or Latino or Hispanic Americans? Are they more in line with Asian Americans, who tend to be do a little slightly fair as an average on median household income? We don't know. All of these different areas in which we look to kind of be markers of social health, public health, or even just social wellness, we don't have examples for Arab Americans. And the final piece is, if you want policy enacted for Arab Americans, you better have some numbers that you're making up from somewhere. I was seven when the towers came down. I remember watching it on TV and growing up, I heard terrorist. I heard Osama. One of the more, I guess, mean things was I used to get tape wrapped around my arms because I'm hairy and they would rip the tape off as fast as they could to see which hair they could take off as a way to like make fun of me. I remember, you know, in high school wearing my Palestinian great-grandfather's and um, a so, uh, robe and like headdress, headscarf. And I walked in, and this was actually on Halloween. So I, I walked in on Halloween wearing this, and so everybody else is in costume, and you know, everybody looks at me and goes, Why are you wearing that? It's so weird. What are you doing? I'm speaking to a zombie, right? This dude's a zombie, the other dude's a Frankenstein. Like I'm the weird guy, right? And so I had to play it off as oh, I'm just an old Arab. Oil shake, because that was like what you're acceptable to be. And so at no point in my life growing up in the institutions I was attending, which were all white usually, that I could ever feel comfortable being who I was and being accepted as harap, right? I had to white myself in many, many ways. And so when I applied to Michigan, it's a smack in the face. For me, it was also a smack in the face because my mother, a Palestinian immigrant, marked white. My great uncle, her uncle, also went to Michigan, also marked white. So this is from 1950 through the current day that we are having people who are getting marked as either white or some other identity that is not referring to who they actually are, which is incredibly frustrating. I mean, it's it's devaluing, but it's also dehumanizing because your lived experiences, while not solidified in a box, aren't even represented enough to be identified on the box. And this also has a lot of repercussions. So this is something I've kind of noticed even with my own identity, even in conversations around social justice, around uh, progress, around policy decisions. um, When we talk about marginalized populations, Arab is usually left out. Muslim is brought in, but Arab is left out usually. And that is strategic, right, because people don't know that Arab is a category. Now, there is issues between being a Christian Arab and Muslim Arab. Uh, I grew up as a Christian Palestinian. I still am. um, And I had many interesting occasions in which kids thought I was Muslim and I was not. But I had to become a spokesperson for Islam because they were not smart enough to get it. Even in different circles, we see where opportunities where there could be moments of connection, collaboration, opportunities for coalition building that are just non-existent. Not because of the box, but the box is one part of that.
4: Basically, I think that us being represented and having our numbers, it'll be like such a positive domino effect because we'll be able to see representation in so many different places that will lead to the overall recognition of the Middle Eastern, North African presence. So if you think about giving numbers to a magazine or giving numbers to a media company, That media company will then be able to reach out to people from this community, right? And then one of us could get featured in a magazine. And then that in return brings recognition to Middle Eastern, North African, just like the race in general or the category in general. It'll have a much bigger effect in so many, I guess, like implicit aspects that like we aren't even aware of yet. Because it comes so easy to everyone else that we don't question it, right? But when we see this for ourselves, it seems so far off because mm-hmm. we aren't counted. That we we have trouble, I guess, giving ourselves what, for example, white
0: people have handed to them. I just better. Yeah, um, my sister is actually she's in AP research in high school right now, and she's doing her research on why it's important to include Arab and Chaldean women in health disparities research, specifically when it relates to um, like postpartum depression and like wow um, female mortality she has research studies where like they include arab as like a different category and and the findings are different like you know it's like That's so interesting especially because if there's mental
4: health isn't talked about
0: in exactly in our culture, really. so wow that is so interesting oh my goodness yeah. It just feels like it's just all around us. Like I was at an event for like an organization I'm a part of, and they did like women in the Supreme Court for like Women's History Month. And they were like showing statistics of law schools and like demographics. And there were, you know, like white, black, um, like Native American, Asian. But then there was no like, there was no out mm-hmm. of like, how, I, I would really like to know like how many MENA lawyers there are, or like mm-hmm. how many meticulate in, in law school, like, I feel like that that would be really helpful information for me.
4: It's it's Um, really sad because even like the quote-unquote like woke organizations like rarely ever mention Mina as a category. They will list every other racial group except
0: us. And just Basically, further supports that like people who it's brought to their attention that this is a problem are usually like, yeah, like what the heck, like how did we not do this before? But people just don't know. They're just mm-hmm. the invisibility mm-hmm. is, is so prevalent. Exactly. Um,
5: need to be able to recognize um, inequities, but also to be able to celebrate our community and to see what we're doing well in and to be able to target our community with what we need. I mean, you know, you have to, you have to be able to recognize a community and and see where their faults are in order to provide targeted policies. But I think it, um... It erases a lot of like the individual experience. Um, Like I was saying, I mean, race in general is a social construct. And a lot of what whiteness is, is how you're perceived and and how you are interacted with. And so while for some Arabs, because I mean, you know, I do want to acknowledge that there are Arabs who are very like white passing and and benefit from white privilege. For some Arabs, they might be able to live a life in America, you know, if they don't have an accent, if they don't have a particularly inflammatory name, they might be able to live life in America america with the same privileges as a white person but if you're talking for example like to me as an egyptian woman or you know like if you're talking to people from yemen if you're talking to people from tunisia and libya if you're talking to people from like the mountains of Lebanon, like you know it's it's really such a variance it erases like i was saying the reality of
2: someone's experience It's very simple, and we often uh, kind of use this phrase, it's like the lack of institutional memory, uh, documentation, and recognition regarding the historical presence of the MENA community, it only disempowers the community. For example, if we wanted to understand the needs of MENA students on campus, you cannot do that if you don't have data to back up th- th- those claims. You know, So if you wanted to look at academic retention rates, academic achievement disparities, graduation rates, dropout rates, bias incidents, health services, mentorship to students, like from faculty and staff, without data, without having a box on surveys, uh, whether it's through admissions or through student life or really any other office on campus, then you, again, you can't make any type of conclusion. We know nothing about the community without data. Data drives any type of claim and any type of, any type of statement that you can make. I can't go out and say, you know, our community needs this when we don't have data to kind of back that up. Um, I mean, I can, but a lot of people then question it. Like, how do you really know that? And that's where it kind of plays a big role. On the census, if you fill out other and you write in Middle Eastern, North African, Actually, no matter what you write in other, what the census does, and a lot of people don't know this, what the census does is they put you in with white, even if you, so if I put other and I don't know, like if I put Sudan, you know, and it's a, you know, North African country, they wouldn't put me with like black. They put me as white. Like they put me as in. Yeah. So, which is a lot of people do, yeah, a lot of people think that, oh, if I write other, if I put in you know, in the box of other and write my own country or my own, like if I put Mina on there, then it will, you know, they'll create some type of other categories for collecting people who put that. No. And that's actually how on the national level, uh, that's how the conversation kind of started is because they realized so many people were putting in other and putting in Mina or putting some other Mina, like not just Mina, but a mean a country. But so yeah, so going back to the, you know, we are not white. And that's, I mean, let's really think about this. Let's think about this post-9-11. Let's think about kind of in the media how we're portrayed. And media, I'm not talking about just like news outlets. I'm talking about movies. I'm talking about TV shows, the stereotypes that comes with being out of our names, you know, how many times do we do we get stopped at the airport? And it's you know, it's a it's a random check. So 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 this is where we you know a white person would not go through something like this. Uh, if someone sees a name, you know, Jād they're not gonna be like, Oh, this guy's white, right? Lean Sharba, you know, that's you know, she's not white.
3: Personally, like I'm studying medicine and public health, like it's actually disastrous. How a lot of Middle Eastern immigrants and refugees come into the US. We have no idea anything about them, demographically speaking. And we we have no way to even understand disparities with our, our own community. So, like, for example, like I'm working on a project regarding refugees in the Bay Area, California. The the experience of Yemeni asylum seekers and refugees is very different than Lebanese immigrants who come from the Middle East. But they're both categorized in ways where, like, we have no ways to, like, understand the discrepancy between the two communities. We need to, one, homogenize and get that data for ourselves so we can do public health work. We also need to be able to, like, subcategorize ourselves to get better information.
0: What are some of the effects that you saw the We Exist movement have on campus? In terms of the two years
5: that passed after it, so this is now something that we now see in internal documents. Um, it like puts a little smile on my face that I can say um, Mina rather than White in in mission internal documents. But we were also recognizing that for legal reasons, this data isn't necessarily as accessible to students because you can't create programs um that are inaccessible to people that are not of that ethnicity or race. And so one way that we were trying to utilize. This um, is that, okay, now it's at the forefront of our minds that we need to count people because of the We Exist movement. But we were like, okay, here's this point of advocacy that has been identified and is now being collected, thank God, at an institutional level. But how can we make use of this new point that we've recognized as students? And the way that we did that is trying to create salam where we could ensure that it would be sent to all first year students and people who would self identify. As Mina would hopefully, just as they would press Mina on a little form, they would also, you know, as they're opting in for their orientation, they would also opt in for salam. Even if they don't end up attending, at least us having their information and being able to collect that voluntarily would be something of benefit to us. I was so lucky to have that mentorship from the community above us, and it gave us so much foresight to start these kinds of programs. And I think that was a big thing that really drove this program is that, okay, not only are we trying to create a pipeline where students, once they come on campus, identify, self-identify themselves to us and like not have to waste time because so many people would be like, I wasted the first year of my college experience. I didn't find that of community. So we were trying to mend that. But at the same time, we were trying to provide mentorship that both me and like the co-founder Noor found so crucial. I mean, Nadine was a key mentor for me in college and Jed was a key mentor for her. And I think we both recognized that the reason we were able to do so much of what we did undergrad was because we had mentors who quite literally took us to meetings and, and taught us a lot of these leadership skills. So we were like recognizing that privilege and trying to and make it accessible for all Arab's coming in. Also recognizing we had quite a complicated landscape of outup organizations. So Sam kind of like took that and basically introduced students who were coming into all of the different little bits and pieces of the outup community on campus. But it was also very important and quite similar to what you're doing right now in being almost an archival tool. You know, we can sit there and talk to the new students about these crucial movements that allow us to do so much more than we were able to. The first salam, we sat there for I think a good two, three hours and talked about divestment. We talked about We Exist. We talked about all of these things because it's so important to know your history in order to know where you were so that you can know where you're going. We were able to, you know, see that here's this point of advocacy that we need and recognize that, okay, we need to make salam out of it we need to make Arab Leadership Network out of it. I think Pipeline students, entitled Leadership Network, which is just a way to like make sure that Arabs on campus are trained and have the skills to be leaders, to be wherever they want to be on campus and be at the top of it, as well as be able to adequately and competently run our community.
0: How has this fight looked differently in your professional sectors than it did at your time at Michigan?
2: I mean, the best example is COVID-19. So we were uh, working on a study where we wanted to understand the COVID-19 vaccine acceptance among communities in the U.S. At the time when we had created the survey, and this was supposed to be a nationally representative survey, what researchers typically do, especially on a national level, not just a regional or like a, a local level, is mirror what is on the census so that is a perfect and we ended up publishing the data and it was one of the f- one of the first studies if not the first study that looked at COVID-19 vaccine acceptance among adults across the U.S. it, it kind of broke my heart because I I mean I was a, like you know I helped lead the study I helped I helped publish it I helped write the manuscript for it and for you know for myself for for me to not be able to uh, include Amina box and for me not to even purchase my own like kind of selfishness of wanting to understand what is the vaccine acceptance rate among, you know, MENA individuals in the US. I couldn't do that. And that has a lot of implications because then after that, because it was one of the first studies that did that, so many studies that followed that wanted to look at vaccine acceptance within specific populations, whether it was healthcare workers, whether it was specific, you know, within a specific age or a specific profession, they would, again, so they would just mirror what we did. And so it just, it furthers kind of the issue where they're not including the MENA population. Again, this is a pandemic that we're going through, right? The, really the last one was back in 1918. And so to kind of think about that and all the research is being collected and that has Uh, that has been collected in the past, it's been about a year now, a year and a half really, that research is going to be referenced for decades to follow because this was such an important time. There were so many gaps public health wise and and preparing for this pandemic and preparing for vaccines and preparing for mitigation resources and thinking about infection prevention, controlling infection uh, and infection prevention. So just think about all that, like it has huge implications when we are not included in this data.
3: Well, for me specifically, like in the Bay Area, especially in leadership roles and, and, and administrative roles and policy work, you don't see a lot of people. When you get that, it's kind of just like people don't even know how to advocate or that this is even an issue or that like this is even like something up for discussion. And so for myself right now at Stanford in the med school, uh, it's interesting to see how organ, uh, organizing diffuses because uh, I'm, like, founding a founding member of an organization called Salam at uh, uh, Stanford. It stands for, like, uh, Stanford Arab Leadership something. It's a longer name. And it's basically, like, Arab doctors who are... Uh, trying to organize within the Stanford system because we have a lot of Middle Eastern, North African people this year, but not a lot of like institutional power. What we're trying to do is um, trying to do the same thing with the Mina Box, like at Stanford. And I actually, it wasn't even me who proposed the idea. It was a kid from UCLA. And he was like, yeah, UCLA, like we heard about people organizing around this topic and I think we should do it at Stanford. And I'm just using this as an example to show like how a lot of people are thinking about this. And once you start talking about it and you formalize the path to advocacy, then other people start to do the same things. And it Like, even at Yale, they just heard an article about this. So that that was interesting.
0: Arabs have historically fought to be labeled as white in court because that was the only way they could gain citizenship in the United States. How do we reconcile that history with movements like We
1: Exist? In my own experiences, it's been very interesting. Uh, You know, I live or my family is currently in a a predominantly black city in Flint. Um, And so understanding how whiteness or white passingness, right, because we're not white, we are white passing, though, how that has kind of shielded us from certain criticism um, or kind of allowed us to choose when we unveil our Arabness is a luxury that many others don't have, especially those who are darker skinned. Um, and so, looking at colorism in the community, uh, that's a huge issue. Um, I mean, the amount of times the Arab talk about li- having lighter skin features, having bluer eyes, or whatever, um, and prizing that over people who are, I guess, more darker skinned and more stereotypically Arab, or even those. And, and so, that's one level. And then the other level is failing to recognize that we have black, Arab who are our cousins, right? Like Sudanese members of the otter community, Somalian members of the otter community, members from Djibouti, like darker skinned Egyptians. Uh, We have a lot of internal, intra-otter, basically decolonization that we need to do. And the problem with this, when you have a reaffirming of whiteness in the broader society, it makes that internal talk much, much, much more difficult because you have people from the older generation who might say, well, look, you know, this is what it is. And they will use a racist example, they found the United States because that's what they were taught in the United States as a way to back that up. Uh, so just for context, my organization also provides immigration services. Um, so we have an immigration program that we've run for like 20 years. The immigration system also does this very heavily, right? When you come as an immigrant to the United States and lean, you probably know this is that you are learning white history you're not you have no opportunity to learn narrative history from marginalized groups right you are learning white history in your civics exam and then on top of that you are on best behavior to make sure that your your citizenship or sorry your immigrant status is the best it can be to expedite the process as quickly as possible right and that also usually means not associating with people who could be problematic and that problematic term uh, you which usually is left up to the kind of discretion of your immigration officer is very very much color-based race-based right they will look down on you if you're receiving food stamps they will look down on you if you're receiving you know cash benefits it's especially recently with the public charge rule you know that disproportionately impacts those who are from marginalized communities and so you're more likely to isolate yourself from those communities because of this identity. So our immigration system breeds whiteness. And if you are coming from another country and you are not white, it will breed you to whitify yourself and separate from blackness or brownness in any way in the United States to be more palatable to white society, and the white system. Um, I'm Palestinian, uh, so it's always very interesting when I talk to people about being Palestinian. Not even I'll exclude Michigan for right now. So I went to Catholic school my whole life. So Catholic school, people should know who Jesus is, right? They have an idea. And in the Bible, you hear about current Palestinian cities. So you hear about Nazareth, where my family's from, Bethlehem, where my is from, Jerusalem, where I have a lot of family, right? So these are Palestinian cities. It was amazing, amazing to go through middle school, elementary school, and high school, and a Catholic school that thought of Christ as white, that did not recognize who Arabs were, that could not even plot these points on a map. I walked into my senior year theology class, saw my professor or teacher at the time drawing a map, a really bad map of Palestine, and he misplaced the cities on the map because he was so uneducated on just where the cities are. And these are not small cities, like these are world renowned cities because they are mentioned in the book these people believe it, right? And so that was one piece of it, which is, it is amazing just the general lack of connectivity. And this is intentional, right? Because we are designed, like not designed, we are taught not to make these connections. We are taught not to see the original Christians as being brown, Arab, right? And for me, and this was always interesting for me, is because I never viewed my Christianity as the white Christianity. I viewed it as like, it's the homeland. Like my mom received her first communion above the same house where Knesset the Brashawara, so like the Church of the Annunciation, so where the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her you would have a son Jesus, right? So if if you are a Christian and you believe in that, that's going to be extremely important to you. But my mom is not recognized and my family is not recognized as having any importance relative to that. And it's because of the identity piece. But there's also a second piece there, which is, and I wanted to mention it, and I noticed this much more when I got into college, but it was also prevalent throughout my life. When I spoke about Palestine, And because I had many people ask, where are you from, Palestine? Oh, Pakistan. Never heard of her. Who is she? Like, come on, really? But whenever I would speak on Palestine, particularly at the University of Michigan, which is very Zionist, pro-Israel institution, whichever way you want to phrase it, a lot of pro-Israel professors, really no Arab teaching on Palestine in any way. It's horrible. I would be believed if people believed that I was a white kid while speaking on Palestine versus if I opened in the class and said, I'm a Palestinian. I have dual citizenship. I'm an Arabic speaker. I'm the first generation of my family to be born in the United States, outside of Palestine in 800 years. If I lead with that, they don't believe me. And so it was amazing to see the differences in which you could represent yourself to other people. And I think that also goes a lot to needing to have somebody validate your experiences when they, when you are a person of color when you are somebody from a marginalized identity and it's extremely infuriating to also then have to put back into whiteness on official documents. We allow Americans to have such a wide range of diverse opinions, identities cultures, thoughts, feelings. But when it comes to a marginalized group in any way, you have one image and that's it. You have to live up to it, right? For us, our, we have two images. Our, the Arab American population, the two images are the brown terrorist with a beard or the like hurt or needing protection Muslim woman who is wanting to escape to America and take off hijab and finally be a liberated feminist, right? Neither of these are correct in any way, but those are the only two images that we get to represent ourselves. And when you do that, you pigeonhole an entire group.
0: I feel like this is the sort of thing where people who hear about it are mostly supportive, but people just don't. When you make a population invisible, like then then people don't even realize that that's, the invisibility is a problem because it's just not there. Or they're visible in like a negative light,
4: right? Or like an exotified type of light. So it's like Arabs are either terrorists or they're these very exotic, beautiful, like overseas type thing that you don't, that is like untouchable almost or too far to reach. And then it goes back to like beauty standards too, right? Like it's all connected. It's all part of this white supremacist type agenda where it's like beauty standards are supposed to be like mostly towards being white. And if you're darker skin, you're not as beautiful. And like it all ties back.
2: This is more so the older generation where the argument kind of came like, oh, you know, you're white, you know, like Middle Eastern, North African is a part of the white category. And that's usually the older generation. And the reason why that is, is because they wanted to be accepted by Americans, by white Americans. And we see this often with the immigrant populations. Because you want to be accepted and at times you want to separate yourself from your your own people, that's where that argument comes from. You know, that's really where it's rooted. It's that, you know, they don't want to be different. And why don't they want to be different? And it's first for valid reasons, but we live in a different time. But at the time is they don't want to be discriminated against. They don't want to be left out of jobs. They don't want to, you know, especially when we think about employment, we think about interviews. Uh, They wanted to be a part of the white category because they didn't want to miss out on all these opportunities that white people were taking away from them. Whiteness was a prerequisite to citizenship until like 1950s, early 1950s, with the exception of made for uh, those who were black, African-American and Native Americans. And obviously, that's because of discriminatory reasons, not because you know they wanted to recognize them in any way. And that was that was more so because of the racism that existed and still exists. But those who did not fit the binary black and white racial structure. So by the way, not just me and our Arab. You're talking about Asians, South Asians, Latinx folks. You know, they made arguments for their citizenship by claiming whiteness. That's really what it, what it came down to. I think that in um, in 1914 or 1915. I believe his name is, is George Dow, and he was, he was a Christian from Syria and was granted citizenship in 1915 after being denied twice in like the previous year. And, you know, the judges who had presided over uh, his two naturalization cases that were denied argued that Syrians, you know, were not white based on kind of their interpretation of white at the time. And we saw a later case uh, very similar. It was, a, it was a Yemeni Muslim. I, I believe his name is Ahmad Hassan, and this was in the early 1940s who was also denied citizenship because he was not considered to be a white person. So anyway, there's so many cases. So, you know, it's important to kind of bring these conversations up, especially because we see a lot of, you know, anti-Blackness in cross non-Black communities and including, you know, I'm talking about non-Black communities of color.
5: I think, I think we're kind of, because this is happening so much later and, and the discussion around race and ethnicity and racialization has become so developed, we also should use that privilege to be very intentional when creating this box um, where we recognize that theoretically the MENA region has like a variant of race. You know, I mean, we look so different, but we're kind of clasping onto something that bonds us together, which is this kind of like region this common experience and and often you know linguistic and and cultural um, shared identities, but it's I think it's equally important to to not erase that I think the disparities that we have amongst. I don't necessarily want to say disparities, but I think the differences just because it also creates a, a different lived experience. Um, and I, I think it's just like so interesting going back to, you know, how we're kind of caught up in this in this very sticky situation where, you know, we do have to identify ourselves as a as a common identity when we are so, I think, colorful. We're so we're so diverse and so different. And and this practice of of grouping ourselves into To one in such a way is really operating within a white supremacist framework. Um, And I don't want to say that to, you know, diminish any of the commonalities that we all celebrate because it's definitely there. But I think it's just it's very important to know.
0: Why do you think there is so much pushback against having a box? Why hasn't this happened yet? Why has the U.S. Census still not included a MENA box? It's just like inconvenience, right? And then like, I think another
3: thing is like, there is a faction of Middle Eastern North Africans who don't want to be categorized as MENA. And some of those people have a lot of influence in, in, in United States government and other places. And so because of that, they're also, they have platforms and loud voices to kind of silence this and say like, no, this isn't a good idea for whatever reasons they believe it to be not a good idea. And so like, mm-hmm. I think like that's like one thing. And then I say like another thing is like from an institutional perspective, like I'm not even talking about US, I'm talking about like universities. When you start to have more boxes, let's okay, it, it does it does make things complicated. It, it's kind of like, okay, now we have all these categories. So how do we service all these different kinds of students? For example, if you're talking about a university. And so I do think, again, it comes down to like logistics and, and just like, a fear of changing the way we do things that like, you know, makes people not wanna change. But I think that like the MENA community is a particular case because like, especially for example at U of M, like Dearborn, so UMish is a public institution. It's in the, in the state of Michigan and Dearborn has the highest concentration of Arabs outside of the Middle East. So our numbers here should match what the state institution has. So for example, if two percent of the state is Middle East and North African, then we should have similar numbers at our public institutions like Michigan State and U of M. I think mm-hmm. like it's it's like it's like it makes sense from an advocacy perspective, but it just is logistically inconvenient. That's
4: what I think. Now I don't know the specifics or like logistics of it, but I think the US and and partially the university carry this mentality of this is how things are and this is how the way things should be and always have been so they will continue to be this way as much as University of Michigan and like America really tries to be this progressive forward thinking liberal etc there are so many things that we have implemented that we are unwilling to change and I think it might be something genuinely as simple as like on the university level at least this has never existed before and it's not something that we can just go ahead and change It's it's not our job to do that or we don't have the power to do that when in reality they definitely do
5: our immigration policy right now is is looking at like quotas that aren't even relational to the population of the country like our quotas are quite honestly I would say arbitrary um because if if we're really trying to like have equitable policy immigration like laws then it would be relational to the population of each country rather than just like oh yeah here's the same quota for every single country when like you know Norway has significantly less people than China I mean it kind of goes back to maintaining a white majority and I think that being able to blur Arabs into that in a part might help with that.
0: I, I think I think that's completely a valid point you know people have come out and say you know like it it feels like a threat to be get rid of such like a big number that could potentially and and the number that we don't really know because it's yeah. never been checked but just like the the threat of of removing mm-hmm. that from the white category.
5: I mean, I want to be realistic and say that, like, we are quite a small number, but at the same time, I think that expanding our idea of race and being able to, like, nationally recognize it is a threat in the long run. Maintaining this, at least, phenomenon of a a white majority and and signified race boxes.
1: On the one hand, we have those who have no clue what they're talking about, who aren't Arab, saying we need more research. That's a lie. We don't need more research. But there's a much more valid concern, which is tracking um, surveillance from the United States government. And this is 100% true. Any marginalized group knows this. In the United States history, they have tracked and marginalized for the point of eradication or subversion of marginalized groups. Um, and this is no different for the Arab American community. We know that they were watching most people in Dearborn and most people in New York City after 9-11 for about a decade. The ACLU has proven that. We know that they have been basically racistly putting people on a no-fly list, the terrorist watch list. For at least 30 years, right? It actually predates 9 11. So we are already suffering at the hands of the surveillance state, as most Americans are, but we get it disproportionately. So there is this real tangible fear on is this going to be used to track us? Now, the official census answer, which I kind of had to tout a little bit in the outreach, was the census doesn't share this data, which is true. The census does not share data along those lines. The Trump administration actually was trying to do so on this citizenship and immigration question. It failed, but it doesn't mean that they might get a better idea of the ethnic makeup of an area.
0: Some fear that more recognition could lead to greater surveillance, that identifying ourselves as MENA could put a target on our backs. What do you have to say about this?
4: Honestly, I think it definitely is a risk. However, I think we are already getting surveilled purely based on our last names or our name. Like I literally have Allah in my last name. Of course, I'm going to get randomly selected by TSA at the airport, you know. So I think this type of surveillance is already happening. I also think the government knows a lot more about us than we think they know, like a lot more. And I think they already have a lot of the information that they want or need for no apparent or justifiable reason. But I think it might make surveillance, I guess, maybe even like easier on them. But I don't think like the amount that they will be surveilling us is going to like drastically increase.
1: They already use data to track us. Social media is already available to be tracked. Your cell phone is already tracking you, and they are absolutely doing so right now. As an Arab-American population, we have been tracked and surveilled mercilessly for over 20 years. This is one of the one opportunities where we could actually use data to help us rather than hurt us. So why not try and get the benefit of being tracked in addition to the thing that we already are experiencing, which is the detriment of being tracked?
5: I don't want to belittle those concerns, but I also think it would be naive of us to think that we are not already being identified in other ways. I think it's quite accessible to identify pockets of MENA communities. Um, and while like the census uh, definitely allows for like self-identification, it's really, really quite easy to identify identify, um, individuals already as Mina. I mean, things as simple as our names are quite significant signifiers and it's already been happening for years. I mean, I think that the entire rhetoric around surveillance, um, like it seems like, oh, this is some mystic thing that we don't know much about, but it is quite present in our communities already. And I would also say that a large part of it, for example, you already see it in Muslim communities and it's very, very evident. Obviously, like noting not all Arabs are Muslim, but I think that this is a fear that we have long passed. Surveillance is already so entrenched within our communities and that's without us self-identifying. And so sadly, I think that even collecting data on ourselves at a large scale wouldn't necessarily... um make us more targeted because we already are like I was saying there's signifiers like our names if if people are practicing in a religion or identify with a specific religion you know I think um people who are traveling often um so as I was saying I think that we are already accessible communities and a lot of times our ethnicities are quite known it's not necessarily like putting a target on our back because
3: we already have one yeah so uh that's a really great question thing that I'll say is that uh, I don't think any policy solution is ever 100% positive. Like, there's always going to be a risk uh, with, with, like, adopting a measure like this because we are heavily surveilled, probably, if not the most surveilled community in the United States, and that does make people feel a certain kind of way. I'm not diminishing or, like, minimizing the fear that people have from institutions, because obviously our community has a right to feel that fear towards, especially the United States government, right? But Mm -hmm. I I feel like at the same time, like the pros outweigh the cons. And if we ever want to mobilize ourselves and give ourselves more respect within these institutions, it really starts with having this category, in my opinion.
0: What can we do within our own respective spaces moving forward to continue advocating for this topic?
1: My uh, my grandmother is... Palestinian, immigrated from Palestine, straight off the boat, call her a boater, but we love her, no problem. And she has a very different opinion of her own Arab identity than I would. Um, I would view mine as far more all-encompassing. As being not just a Palestinian from this city, but a Palestinian in solidarity with a bunch of other Arab. She would do the same, but she would probably stop hers at a certain point, probably at like Bleddisham Arab, maybe not identifying as much with some of the other Arab, especially those who are of darker skin. I don't stop mine there. I view my Arab and Palestinian identity as in coalition with Black identity, right? In coalition with Asian identity, in coalition with Latinx identity, right? And I think a big part of that is an activist or community organizer perspective. But the second piece is that I've had more exposure to marginalized populations than somebody who immigrated and just had to keep their head down. And so there is very much a, a privilege a little bit in what I have versus what she had, but also that doesn't mean that we can't push our elders to be better. And I'm speaking internally here, right? Arab American youth are, we are the bloodline and the life of our generation, or sorry, of our community. Um, And it seems very hard to speak up Um, Especially when we're disregarded so many times, even when we have master's degrees, PhDs, you know how it goes, even when we do fulfill the big three of doctor, lawyer, engineer, but we still have to keep going, right? Because it's equally important that we don't just get to be patted on the head and talked about by our community held up as a gold shining star without saying anything, we have to be equally vocal about saying, look, we did this. You forced us to get educated. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for making the trip over here across the sea. And we know it was hard. We appreciate everything you've done. doesn't mean we can't push you to be better because a lot of the things that we see in the community keep getting replicated because we don't get to have the honest conversations. And youth have to be the ones leading that because we can't rely on our older generations to do so. doesn't mean they're not our partners and allies in this. It just means that sometimes we have to take the lead on things.
2: I think what I would say, and I think this is more so a message to any MENA student who is at the University of Michigan or who's listening to this and is on any other campus. And it's that we need to continue to advocate for our community. And there are still many things that we are left out of uh, and many conversations that we are left out of. So the best advice I give to incoming freshmen or even like Or if they're already freshmen, they're going to be sophomores, even sophomores going to be juniors, where if they have a year, two or three still on campus and they're, you know, they're wondering, what should I be a part of? What should I do? You know, I want to, you know, I want to make an impact. I want to make a change. And the best place to start is identify where you can play a best role. For your community, and obviously it depends on what you're comfortable with, the amount of time that you have on your hands. So, the, so the be, you know the best advice is kind of identify what area in your community can you play kind of the, you know the best role in. And so, an example is we don't have an alumni group. Like an official through the Alumni Center, whether it's Arab or MENA, we don't have that at all. So, I I mean, it's pretty obvious where that plays an important role where alumni can kind of give back to their community and to to the students back on campus to connect them, um, to expand their networks. So that's just one example. While this MENA box is very, very important, there are so many other other issues that we need to tackle as a community at the University of Michigan. And in a sense, it feels like a responsibility. Like you're, you're part of this, of not just Nina and Arab Americans, but also of your own people and your own ancestors. Oftentimes where, you know, you were in that room, you had someone else, but oftentimes where it's just us, you know, there's no one else. That's very challenging. It's not easy. It's not easy for us to push back against others and, and, and push back against the norm in a setting when we're really the only ones. So I do want to recognize that it's not very easy. And depending on the spaces that we are in, you know, we don't want to come off this is, this is what we we're afraid of. We don't want to come off too aggressive. We don't want to come off in a way where then we lose out on opportunities and not being able to connect with different folks. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we know we are doing the right thing. At the end of the day, those who are on our sides, it's because they believe in what we believe in. And that's, that's what's most important. And why would you want to have someone on your side who doesn't believe in your people and in your representation, mm-hmm. regardless of who that person is?
0: Thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Nene. Yeah, no, thank you so much for doing this. You've done such a great job and it's been
5: such a pleasure to talk to you about all of this.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. But thank you so, so, so much.
0: Yeah, good luck with everything. Advocacy for the box is ongoing because the US census still doesn't include a MENA category. In this episode, we hope to highlight the importance of this issue. Additionally, we've used the term MENA throughout this episode to refer to people from the Middle East and North Africa. However, the term Middle East was first used by colonizers who exploited that region. So student activists at Michigan are advocating for the use of the term SWANA, or Southwest Asian and North African instead. To learn more, check out the Michigan in Color Statement about the continued need for Swana recognition linked in our show notes. Thanks so much to Devin, Jad, Silan, Edwa, and Nadine for joining us in this conversation. And thank you to everyone for listening. We'll talk to you next time on Pass the Mic.